and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, time freeze. That's correct, time freeze. This is a phenomenon that some UFO abductees or experiencers uh, describe as being frozen in time during their experience or abduction with the UFO phenomena. Now, some of us also call this lost time. But I like this phrase, time freeze, because I think it not only applies to something that UFO experiencers are subjected to, but also applies to what's happening in today's modern media. It seems like some of the stars of the UFO community want to subject you and I, the UFO investigative community, to time freeze. They want to tell us to sit down and shut up while they talk and we listen. They want to subject us to a pre-internet world where we were unable to find countless UFO encounters, uh, reports, biographies, um, videos, whatever, online. And we we're so blessed today that we can just log on to a computer or your telephone and you have access to probably millions of reports and accounts that people have had with UFOs, ETs, non-human entities, whatever kind of paranormal thing or extra-normal thing you can think of, you can research it online. It takes about a second. But it stuns me how we have certain celebrity investigators still want to put themselves on programs on the History Channel or on YouTube or wherever, set themselves up as repositories of wisdom, some might say suppositories, and tell us how we need to be quiet, how we're kooks, quacks, they want nothing to do with us but to send them money, shut up and listen. And it just kind of gets my gourd a little bit. Now, I go off on this tangent because I'm rummaging around online the other day, and I come across, uh, I guess it must have been a clip of one of the unidentified programs, and the History Channel posts like segments up there. And this one had to do with Mario Woods. It happened back like in 1977, I believe, out in Wyoming when he was a soldier assigned to one of the uh, underground nuclear missile silo uh, facilities out there. Pretty serious business, of course. And it's about a nine-minute video, and I'm watching it. And it's well done. It's uh, The cinematography's awesome. The uh, interview seems really good. I mean, it's polished. And, you know, you start watching these things and you can't take your eyes off of them. I went ahead and posted the link there at the website, ufowarning.com. It's worth the watch. And I'm like, wow, you know, maybe I've been a little too, little too tough on Louie. I mean, he's putting some really good stuff out here. And so then I, I'm curious, you know, I want to see more about this case because what can you know in nine minutes? They have, they, like I said, they had a pretty good interview with this guy. You know, here it is, what, um... 43 years after the fact or something. Anyway, so I do a little bit of that research online, something that I wouldn't have been able to do maybe 25, 30 years ago. And I find out there's a little more to the case. And I also find some information from uh, Robert Hastings, kind of a, kind of a, uh, I think he's a somewhat well-known UFO investigator. And I put links to some of his stuff there at the website, ufowarning.com. And he had a pretty critical review of that video, and for good reason. But first, before we get into that, I want to 
I've just read uh, some of this that Hastings wrote back in September 10th, 2017, before the uh, unidentified clip came out with Mr. Woods. And his account of it is pretty detailed. Now he says, over the past 44 years, I have interviewed more than 160 U.S. military veterans regarding their involvement in nuclear weapons-related UFO incidents. Many of the cases occurred at Minuteman Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Sites, such as the ICBMs, during the Cold War era. Typically, a two-man team of missile launch officers at an underground launch control center, LCC, would receive an alarm on their missile status console indicating a possible security breach at one of the ten widely scattered launch facilities they controlled. A two-man security alert team, a SAT, would then be dispatched to that location to investigate. So here these guys were up on the northern plains of the United States, uh, out literally in the middle of nowhere, guarding these underground nuclear silos. You know, you see them on television now sometimes where some of these things have been converted to uh, bed and breakfast. I don't even know why you'd want to stay there. They're they're quite ugly, in my opinion. Anyway, usually upon arriving at the LF, commonly known as Silo, that's the launch facility, the SAT team would observe a UFO silently hovering directly over the site at low altitude. So did you catch that? Usually. This means this was a very common sight that these things were having their airspace invaded by UFOs. You got to wonder what they were doing there. I mean, they're coming there that often... Are they just somehow drawing energy off of these things? Are they making sure that uh, the Americans and the Russians weren't blowing each other up? Very strange. It says, depending on the case, the aerial object was described as a disc-shaped or spherical or triangle or, cil or cylindrical-shaped craft. After a few seconds, the craft would leave the vicinity, typically at high speed. On occasion, as revealed by former missile maintenance personnel, the functionality of the ICBM would be disrupted during the incident, whether deliberately or inadvertently, requiring lengthy repairs. Wow. So they're showing up at the silos, and they're causing problems. In every case reported to me over the years, the SAT team members were debriefed upon returning to base and sternly warned never to discuss the incident. Sometimes they were required to sign national security non-disclosure forms, which stipulated several legal penalties for violating secrecy. Often each team member was quickly transferred to another base without his partner, probably to prevent them from discussing their experience between themselves and spreading stories about it within their squadron. Well, you've got to control the narrative. And the last thing in the world that any government is going to want is for their people to think that they're not able to protect them. And when we see these UFOs show up in disabled nuclear facilities, well, Houston, you have a problem. In every case reported to me over the years, the SAT team members were debriefed upon returning to base and sternly warned to never discuss the incident. That's correct. Recently, one such case was brought to my attention, which appears to be far more dramatic in nature in terms of its immediate and long-term impact on the security personnel involved. Indeed, on the available information, it seems, it seems probable that the SAT members were actually abducted by those aboard the UFO and transported along with their vehicle 
to a location some five miles away where they were eventually discovered by other Air Force security teams. Now, this is a case we're talking about. The two um, U.S. Uh, military personnel, they, they're in the, the military vehicle. They're, they're attempting to go to the silo to uh, observe one of these, what's going on. They have an intruder report. They're going to go there and check it out. They come across this UFO. Boom, they're gone. This is so reminiscent of what we see happening in a lot of these cattle mutilation cases. It's as if these cows are being picked up, they're being mutilated, and dropped somewhere near the area where they're picked up from. And that's kind of what we're seeing happen here with these two fellows. But I'm telling you, none of this shows up in the, in the History Channel uh, unidentified video. It's as if this stuff is too scary, too deep to talk about on TV. Okay, we go on here. It says, What follows here is a written summary of that incident provided to me by U.S. Air Force veteran Mario Woods Jr., who was stationed at Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, from 1975 to 1979. As a member of the 44th Security Police Squadron, the narrative has been edited for the purpose of brevity and clarity. It starts like this. In November 1977, while assigned to the November Flight Launch Control Facility, I was a security alert team on the, on the night shift, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., paired with Sergeant Michael, and it doesn't say his name here, who outranked me, thus making him the team leader. I'm not certain of the exact date, but Thanksgiving was approximately two weeks later, later and as a newlywed, I was looking forward to being home with my wife. On that particular night, it was clear and very cold, and the ground was spotted in snow. While at the LCF, that's the launch, the launch facility there where they keep the missiles at, I walked outside several times to catch my to stretch my legs and have a cigarette and look at the stars. The clarity of the sky in South Dakota is like you've never seen. We were positioned just a few miles north of the small town of Newell. On one occasion. I really didn't look at the time, but I'm guessing it was around midnight. I noticed a very bright star that I had not seen before. I first thought it was a large helicopter or a B-52 bomber flying one of the low-altitude sorties they sometimes did out on the prairies, but it was not. It was hovering at about 30 degrees below the or above the horizon, so the way it shimmered and pulsated led me to continue to watch it for some time, say 20 minutes. I eventually walked back inside the LCF and made a comment about it about it to sergeant blank he laughed and said sure whatever that meant then i told the flight security control fsc who acts as a go-between the response team to the response team and the missile capsule crew officers below ground the fsc also keeps swing security control wsc back at ellsworth apprised of all activities on site after perhaps 30 minutes, I walked back outside and saw no star, so I thought, <clears throat> okay, it was a plane or helicopter. But as soon as I said that <clears throat> to myself, it lit up again. Not quite in the same place, but at the same elevation and more north. Instead of being due east of my location, it was more northeast. This is a phenomenon we see all the time with UFO encounters. 
the person sees a UFO, or maybe they almost have a premonition of a UFO, where the thought has come into their head, and then lo and behold, this thing presents itself to them. Okay, this is what I call your just this is just your average um, observer effect. It's almost as if this UFO is telepathically speaking to somebody or telepathically communicating. In this situation here, he sees the UFO, he notices it, has an observer effect. This thing's moving north. It's almost like it's communicating with him and telling him, hey, I'm here. He says, I thought for a minute and all of a sudden got the idea to flash the facility lights off and on as a signal. Why? I don't know. I guess that's what is done at sea, from ship to ship. My father was a merchant seaman, and I had sailed with him in my youth. So anyway, the LCF had approximately 15 sets of super bright spotlights located on all four, on all four corners of the security perimeter fence and along the roof line of the main building, all controlled by one switch in the FSC's office. I walked inside and told the FSC what I was going to, what I was doing, and he laughed at me. I think it was Sergeant Blank from North Carolina. He said, "Go ahead." So I proceeded to flash the facility lights at this object, not knowing if it was anything unusual, or just a plane or chopper, or doing night flying. And we've talked about this before. Sometimes these abductions occur after a person flashes a light repeatedly back and forth at the UFO. It's almost as if I think sometimes that, the, that whatever this entity is, it is interpreting that as permission. Hey, you're communicating with this thing, man. You're opening up a channel of communication. You are opening a direct channel of communication with this UFO. You don't know what it is. And as I've said before, in my mind, this is getting close to somebody playing around with a Ouija board. You're opening up a channel of communication with entities that you're not really aware of what they're capable of. This is not something that I ever recommend somebody to doing upon sighting a UFO. I do not recommend opening up communication with these entities because you have no idea what you're dealing with. He goes on here, he says, I turned and walked in and flashed the facility lights on six or eight times again and told them both about the object's new position. Neither look... Neither took me seriously. I then went outside one last time, but the object was gone, so I went back inside, thinking how strange all that had been, and feeling stupid about flashing the facility lights at it. I went into the day room and sat down to read or watch some TV. At approximately 130 hours, I guess that'd be what, 1.30 in the morning? We received a situational 4 alert from LF November 5, which was the closest to our LCF, so I guess they're the, they must be actually the control facility, and they're talking about the actual launch facility. And also, closest to the town of Newell, Sergeant Blank and I donned our heavy winter parkas and cold weather gear, and I placed my ditty bag in the F-150 pickup police vehicle. I then went back inside to receive our USKAPP-55 code tables, weapons, and ammo from the FSC, and our safety briefing from the LCC crew underground. WSC went back to Ellsworth, was also contacted, and our estimated travel time to and from the site was discussed. A sit-for meant that, that's a situation for I suppose, meant that the outer zone antenna on the missile site 
and the underground soft support building had been penetrated or had alarmed for some unknown reason. That was no problem as I had done this type of clearing and reset procedures many times at other locations. We left the LCF and headed toward Highway 79. I was in the passenger seat and as we were nearing the highway, I took off in the distance and could see the bright object was apparently near the missile site, which was seen seven or eight miles away. I immediately turned to Sergeant Blank and said, Look man, that light is over November 5. He replied, No way, but I could see his face and he was hoping not. Now, I don't remember any of this part being in the unidentified video clip that I saw. If, if it was, I don't remember. All I remember is them getting the phone call, and then they describe heading toward the launch facility and the UFO encounter. But we can see here, this was a, a multi-phased, ongoing situation. You have a young soldier, He's at the launch facility, which is a few miles from the actual missile. He looks outside. He sees this light that shouldn't be there. He goes in. He talks about it. He comes back. He decides that he'll flash the facility lights off and on several times. These are super bright spotlights, which he does. And in response, this object moves. Now, the next thing you know, he gets a call that the uh, actual missile facility, that's the big hole in the ground with the nuclear missile, that that area has been penetrated, and they need to go up there and find out what's going on. So, they, after some consultation, that's what they do. They're on the highway, and lo and behold, they see the light again. He says, we didn't inform anyone about that on the radio, to the best of my knowledge, but I continued to view the object. As we approached Newell, we made a right turn on the road that led to November 5. As we did, we immediately saw the object hovering directly over the site. It made no noise and was a huge, glowing, reddish-orange sphere. It was only 15 to 20 feet above the ground, and it was roughly the width of a Walmart building. I thought a lot about its size, and I think that estimate is fairly, is fairly accurate. It was enormous. Sounds like it might have, been, might have even been a Walmart supercenter. Now, I will say here, he describes it as being orange. In the video that I watched... They made it look blue, so that's also strange to me. He says his surface was shimmering with red and orange colors, constantly swirling and churning. When I recently watched your documentary film, UFOs and Nukes, The Secret Link Revealed, there's one scene where a computer-generated image of a UFO is hovering over the front gate of an LLCF at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and its colors are, swiftly, are swirling around. What we saw looked just like that. He stopped the vehicle and sat some distance from the security gate. There was no radio communication as neither of us really knew what to do. As we stared at this thing, it seemed like forever. All of a sudden, I could not breathe. I mean, I really could not breathe. It was like pressure on my chest. I could not figure out what was happening and turned to look at blank and could not figure out what was happening. And He's talking about looking at his uh, other his co-worker there, the, the sergeant and saw that both his hands were on the steering wheel, and he was looking straight ahead with a blank stare on his face. Some kind of glow was around him, and I noticed that suddenly he too was gasping for air. I carried a 3D cell mag light, a huge flashlight by today's standards, but the best back then. All I wanted was relief for me and him, so for some reason I rolled the window down and pulled myself out 
and set on the window frame and flashed the light at this object until the suffocating pressure seemed to go away. Then after 15 to 30 seconds, I slid back into the seat. I remember my M16 weapon was positioned between my legs, so I grabbed it as I sat back down. At that point, I didn't look at Sergeant Blank, as I was in some kind of daze. But I saw something like shadows on the right side of the vehicle. And I have memory of voices in my head, more than one saying, Do not fear, over and over. I think I remember small figures, maybe five or six, walking toward the vehicle. Standing behind them was a taller figure, who I think was in charge. Then I believe I passed out. Now this is clearly an abduction, and it is not covered at all in the History Channel documentary, Unidentified. And you know, really, if you're going to tell the story, why not tell the whole story? Unless, of course, your goal is to control the narrative. He goes on and says, The next thing I remember, and it seemed as if only a minute had passed, was the crackle of our radio and something, and someone saying, November 1, what's your status? I turned to Sergeant Blank and said, You get that, and I'll strike the site. But he said nothing. He simply stared off in the distance, so I picked up the mic and informed our FSC that we would begin the strike and were positioning the vehicle. There was a long pause, and then he came back and said, Where are you located? This response seemed very odd, but I said something to Sergeant Blank, but again he said nothing. I asked the FSC to hold on as I didn't see the facility lights that were normally on at night, but I put the mic down and stepped out of the vehicle, only to find that we were somewhere other than November 5. My first step was into wet mud, even though it had been really cold that night, and the ground should have been frozen solid. The entire area was soft mud, and our vehicle was almost in the middle of it. You know what that sounds like to me? They've been picked up, and they've been put down. But to my right, just feet away, was a tall concrete wall of some kind. The sun was just coming up, and I could see that it was a dam that held water in a reservoir. It turned out to be located north of Newell, and it's called Newell Lake, quite a few miles from LF. We were parked next to a road and went past it. That made no sense to me. Now think about this. They said it was 1.30 in the morning, just before they got this call. Now this is in... Uh, Late fall, what, November sometime? Let me tell you something. They're in northern South Dakota. The sun ain't coming up till at least 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. If you have very long nights and very short days at that latitude in the fall and winter. So they had been gone a while. They'd only traveled a few miles with the truck. I don't know. I think it said like 9, 10 miles. They had lost time. As he said, been frozen in time probably for five or six hours, at least four or five hours. It says, this response seemed very odd, and I said something to Sergeant, but but again, he said nothing. It goes on, it says, but to my, excuse me, I read that, but to my right, just feet away, was a tall concrete wall of some kind. The sun was just coming up, and I could see that it was a dam that held water in a reservoir. Okay, that's, that is Newell Lake. Then he goes on and says, the radio came back on and we were told to stay where we were. Our radio signal had been triangulated, something I knew very little about. And then the WSC came on and told me that our sister flight's SAT teams had been dispatched to find us. 
A backup sister team reached us first, and I was told, and I was told to follow them to the edge of their patrol boundary, where we would be met by our November one backup team. When our vehicle arrived, I started asking them questions about what was going on, but they told me they had been ordered not to discuss the situation with us. I again tried speaking to Sergeant Blank. I kept asking him if he was okay, but he still would not respond. Then it hit me like a chunk of lead. We, or I, never went on to the November 5th site. I didn't understand why at the moment, but I was certain that we never got past the LF security gate, because he was still just staring into space. I moved over to the passenger seat. He was not a large man, and I and I was in good shape. We maintained radio security checks for the entire ride back, met up with the sister team, and proceeded to November control. The flight chief, Master Sergeant Blank, and Assistant Flight Chief Sergeant Blank, met us at the facility for a debrief. Sergeant Blank was in a pitiful condition, and I later heard that he couldn't tell them anything, that he made no sense of it all. He was removed from November control and assigned to base duty for some time. Me, however, I remembered everything up to hearing voices and blacking out, and everything after coming to and standing in the mud. Everything in the craft, the suffocating atmosphere, flashing lights at the object, not going into the site, and yes, thinking only minutes had passed from the first seeing this thing to being somewhere else. During debriefing, I was told that nearly four hours had passed, and that six security police backup alert teams had been searching for us. I did fill out an Air Force Form 1000 UFO sighting report, and wrote all I knew about the night and early morning before I was allowed to sleep. The next day, I returned to Ellsworth and was interviewed by the 44th Missile Wing Commander. There was a guy in civilian clothing with him who I think was from the Office of Special Investigations. So then I was out. Then I was also ordered to take a urinalysis at the base hospital, and two skin samples were taken: one from the back of my right hand and another above my right eyebrow, as I was sunburned for some strange reason. Well, this sounds like the radiation poisoning that we often hear about in these situations. Back home, I was slowly be- came to grips with all of this. I began to have strange dreams of dreams of the at the night of the night. Every time, as something was about to happen or show itself, a great dread came over me. I would awake in a pool of sweat and afraid. Two weeks went by, and Sergeant Blank came by my apartment out of the blue, and we went down and talked about the incident in front of my wife. She just laughed at us, but he said one thing I'll never forget. He had been terrified during the incident, but didn't know why, as he had, her vo- as he had heard voices, many voices, saying not to be afraid. But he wasn't in the vehicle when he heard them. He was lying down somewhere. Then he said something that shocked me. He said he saw, he said he saw my mittens on the floor next to where he was lying down. It was... As he was hearing the voices, I reeled when I heard this. It meant that I was probably there with him and that we were no longer in the vehicle. Had not even thought about the mittens after that night, those heavy Air Force issue gloves with open fingers. You could fire a weapon, but when he said that, I ran to my ditty bag to check and they were and they were not there. I got shivers when I saw that. I can't explain why I didn't miss them. This is something else very common we find with abductees. 
whatever these entities that are abducting people don't really seem to have a lot of regard for clothes or how they're put on or how they fit. People constantly end up, well, tragically, when they find the David Politis talks about this all the time, finding these dead bodies of missing people in national parks where the shoes are missing. When there's no way they could have climbed that mountainside barefoot. And you see this here. His mittens are missing. And whatever took him, they don't seem to care. So please don't tell me these guys are space brothers. One more thing. I have two small puncture marks on my skin that I can't explain. This is what Hastings brought up about the video. Elizondo would not approach this. This was not mentioned in the unidentified video. One more thing I have to... I have two small puncture marks on my skin that I can't explain. They're identical, like perfectly round depression with a raised dimple in the center. One is under my left armpit, and the other is on my left foot above the ankle. I don't remember any time or situation when I would have gotten them. Wood subsequently sent me photos of these marks. After a few weeks, I was removed from the November control and reassigned to Kilo control near Sturgis, South Dakota. I had the same sense that I could pick that. I had the same sense that I could pick that object out of the sky, find it among the stars, even at Kilo. It made no difference where I was, but I never saw it close up again. But it was out there visiting all of our bases. We heard stories about other flights, seeing things, seeing things near the LFs on many occasions. Also, National Enquirer had heard rumors about UFO activity in our region and was patrolling our areas looking for stories. We were never told we were told never to speak with anyone about any of this, so I never did as ordered. Sergeant Blank was transferred somewhere else a month or so after the incident. I found out somehow. I remained at Kilo Command working with a different different guy, Sergeant Blank as a as a SAT team member, then leader and then reports and then FSC Stories about sightings were all over the missile complexes, even reports of cattle mutilations. I once saw two of the dead cows myself while traveling to Kilo 1. Later in the year, when Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, the mailbox scene freaked me out so badly that I had to get up and walk out of the theater. In the movie, Richard Dreyfuss' character Roy Neary looks out of his parked truck's window and sees a rack of mailboxes violently shaking. A moment later, a UFO that had been hovering over him directs a beam of light on his vehicle. Having spoken with Woods a number of times, I consider his recollections of the experience to be credible, if incomplete. I, of course, have his DD-214 service record, which confirms his presence at Ellsworth Air Force Base in 1977 and his service as a missile security policeman. I am attempting to locate others who were present that night to see whether any of them remember the events he described, and if so, are willing to talk about them. Also, the techniques remain controversial. I have arranged for hypnotic regression sessions for which to attempt to draw out still suppressed or long forgotten memories about the incident. For example, I am curious to know whether he can remember the SAT team partner driving them to the reservoir in a day state following their sighting on November 5th, or whether the UFO had actually lifted and transported the security vehicle to that location. And of course, and small figures approaching his security vehicle might be augmented via the regression technique. A follow-up article is planned, up-to-date, interested readers on this matter. Wow, what a really, really well-written article right there. It's so much more complete than um, 
the video that that we see um, on the History Channel. There's no comparison to it. Now, the podcast has gone kind of long, so I'm going to go ahead and just let you go over to the um, website, ufowarning.com. And there's a couple articles listed there, and they're really worth your time to read. If you care about the UFO phenomena, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, go to the website, ufowarning.com, and link on to those articles. The first one is Hastings. Uh, it was a recent article where he does a review of uh, the unidentified documentary. It's just like that little nine-minute documentary. You can watch it on the website if you want. And he really goes into detail how they did not talk about the marks that were found on his body. They did not talk about his encounter with these aliens or ETs or whatever they were. They left out the very best parts of the story. Okay, It's like they want to spoon-feed this stuff to us. Or maybe they just want to keep us dumbed down. And then I put another article up there from back in January of 2020. And it's a little bit annoying to me. I mean, I like a lot of George Knapp's work. And I have a lot of respect for him. Okay, But I've got to tell you, this, this I guess you would call it an interview, that he did with Louis Elizondo, very softball. At no point are we told, for instance, where the three videos came from. How they ended up, you know, off the aircraft carriers into the hands of him and Tom DeLong. That subject never comes up. And then just the way that he presents Elizondo. Elizondo comes off as being, I'm sorry to say this, but very condescending. He talks about how he doesn't want to get, uh, he doesn't want to associate with people in the UFO investigative community. He doesn't want to go to some, to some, you know, meet up somewhere and have someone talk to him because that might cloud his judgment or that might, that might put thoughts in his head that, you know, he, he, in other words, he knows everything, and he's not interested in anything you or I have to say. So he's going to make up his own mind. It's, it all goes back to this thing, and this, I think this is a very clever um, psychological technique these people use, and that's called directed speech. Now, directed speech is perfectly appropriate in certain circumstances. If you're a kid in school, you want directed speech. You want the teacher to tell you uh, what's going on. They're teaching you something. If you're at a church service... You need directed speech. You have the pastor stands up and talks, and people listen. If the president gives a speech, or you go to hear, uh, if you go to a concert, you want directed speech. I mean, you're there, they're speaking, singing, whatever, and you're listening, and that's perfect. That's what that, that's the setting for directed speech. Now, if we are collectively trying to get to the bottom of something, collectively trying to find answers, then. Directive, directed speech is not really the best way to do that. We want, we want to collaborate. We want to ask questions back and forth. Okay, We want to tease out the facts and the details. And everybody gets to have their say. And then you can decide whether or not you believe it or you want to include this in your data batch. But Elizondo just comes off just like DeLong. He's like, don't talk to me. Don't try to tell me anything about UFOs. I know it all. I don't need your input, and your input will only add confusion to my analysis. Now, that's not the kind of person I want to depend upon for a theory or an idea or whatever about this whole UFO thing. And I'm certainly not going to depend upon them for disclosure. I like Hastings' approach. He let 
the experiencers say everything they had to say. He tried to condense it down a little bit. He tells you that. He's like, I cut a few parts out just because I had to make it a little shorter, but all the details are there. And that is a really well-written article that takes place, and he shows you the uh, chronological progression of what happened. He reconstructs the crime scene. It tells you everything he does and doesn't add in things that he doesn't know. That's really a fine uh, piece of work. The stuff I saw on the History Channel was entertaining, okay? But the danger to that is that they leave out so much important stuff that we're not really able to to form an informed, complete picture of what we're dealing with. Now, there's some other stuff on the website there, too. Uh, there was a conservative site had posted uh, their analysis of the ATIP program and the fact they thought it was a waste of money. I posted the link. Take a look, see what you think. I think it's important that we examine all these ideas as long as they are presented in a reasonable, logical way. And then you can sort out what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. But I got a resource there, ufowarning.com. Stop by, check out the articles, read the articles, and then make up your own mind as to what you think is going on. Until next time, this is UFO Warning over and out.